this is the Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson. On this episode, Graydon Carter. He was a top Vanity Fair for 25 years with perks like flying the Concorde. Now he's leading the digital newsletter airmail with about 300,000 subscribers. It encapsulates all of the wonderful things he produced at Vanity Fair when magazine journalism was at its height. We'll discuss the story behind why he launched it, the power of celebrity, and why he doesn't look at story data on a dashboard or watch cable news anymore, and what he's doing that he swore he'd never do. Plus, we'll get his thoughts on the redesign of the commissary at Warner Brothers, which he's involved in, and get his take on who could be a great presidential candidate. The answer might surprise you. Tell us about what's new with airmail, how uh, things are progressing. Are you checking the dashboard every day? Does uh, metrics change how you think about the story mix? Uh, Maybe take it from there. Well, it's funny because I know in today's age, you can check the metrics on a story on an hourly basis. And I'll be honest. So airmail is four years old. And I don't think I've checked the dashboard once the whole time. I um, um there are people at the at, at Airmail who do, but it's of no interest me to me. I we didn't do any kind of market research when I was at Vanity Fair that I that I looked at. And you just I think you just sort of go by I've been doing this for a long time. I've been an editor now for 50 years, and you sort of go with your gut and um and you hope for the best. Mm-hmm. So nobody says, hey, this didn't get any traction. We should never do this kind of a story anymore. It's really about your gut and your artistic sensibility about what you think people are interested in. Well, you also you build an audience through lots of smaller audiences. <laughs> Excuse me, in Vanity Fair, there were stories about, say, the press that I know that 90% of the average reader would not care about, but 10% would care about deeply. And but there'd be a story about the art world that maybe 40% didn't care about, but 60% would care about deeply. And so you build it through all these various, you know, interests into what you hope is a is a whole. And we're doing this, I'm using the same rough technique at, at airmail. I, not every story is going to appeal to everybody, but at a certain point, you want to say if, if somebody reads four stories in a week, they'll come back the next week. Hmm. Are you, I mean, I, I just want to read out this great headline, which really captured my attention today. Why is the Wagner Group named after Hitler's favorite composer? Uh, that's a genius headline. And it really got me to, to want to click on the story. Uh, these days, we're, people are thinking about Google SEO and answering a question when it, when it comes to a headline. Are you thinking, you know, what's clever and funny and what's going to attract people versus, you know, what the the SEO uh, engines might suggest. No, I, and I know that and I, we should, probably should be doing that. But Alessandro Stanley, my partner and I, we basically do headlines sort of uh, basically in an old fashioned way, just that we think would be clever and would bring the reader in. You have an, a number of entry points in any story, whether it's the headline, the subhead, um, whole quotes, which are, uh, you know, uh, expanded quotes from the story, photo captions, photographs, and whatever it is, you want to bring the reader into that story. And you'll try anything you possibly can. And I think a clever headline uh, will, you know, get a certain uh, attraction. And uh, we're not, we're not um, modern enough to, to 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 get involved in uh, SEO or whatever it is. Right, there, I love, there, I love there your people, who are, but not us. <laughs> 
I love that. Tell tell us for people who are not familiar with airmail what it is. What are the stories that you like to cover? Why should somebody might be interested to come and read it? Um, you know, my take is that it is this fantastic collection of stories that I would have liked to have read in print, but that same uh, aggregation and curation just isn't available anymore. That that kind of um, uh, fantasy luxury world doesn't feel like it exists in print anymore. T- tell us about what I can read with you at Airmail. Well, it's funny because I we I, uh, I sort of developed Airmail not far from where you are right now. And it was a way of sort of telling, bringing stories to American readers that um, they probably were unfamiliar with. And I, most of the stories we, we run uh, with um, probably 90% certainty that have not appeared in any great form in, in the United States papers. And I wanted it to be like, uh, I didn't want to be in the daily news churn. I didn't, I wanted, didn't want to get involved in the, you know, Boston to Washington, the Sella Corridor, uh, uh, political journalism. I uh, I wanted to do a weekend edition of like an imaginary newspaper, an international paper. And yeah. Airmail is for people who have active passports and who, uh, you know, um, appreciate the world outside the United States. Excellent. And so I think I had read in, in a wonderful story in the Columbia Journalism Review that you began airmail when you moved to France and you were sending little stories to your friends and little links of, of things that you thought might be interesting. And then that developed into the newsletter. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, my wife and I, when when I ran Vanity Fair, I mean, we would we lived in the village and we would go to Casa Magazine, which is on um um 11 on hudson street and uh we bring home all the full of magazines right from around the world it's an amazing store i love the place and when we and uh we'd bring back the newspapers and magazines and tarot stories and we thought were interesting and then sometimes i go in monday morning with a pile of these stories and they may form maybe out of 10 story ideas one would actually take uh sort of root in vanity fair and be and come out three months later if it was something that, that interested us. But I was very, I, I realized everybody I know right, reads all the, the New York and Washington papers, but I read all the, the foreign papers. And I think that makes, I can bring in stories that maybe the average um, American reader uh, is unfamiliar with. Yeah, what what are you reading? I'm, I'm intrigued to know what uh, international publications you enjoy and, and look at regularly. Well, Alessandra reads, <laughs> Alessandra speaks Spanish, Italian, Russian and uh, Russian and French. So she reads those papers. I read the English language foreign papers, including like the South China Morning Post. I read the, you know, I read the, the Times of London. I read the the Telegraph. I read the Guardian. I read uh, um, uh, the this the, the, um, the newspapers in Canada. So I, you know, I it. She, I, I take care of the English language. She takes care of everything else. Yeah, and we should say Alessandra is your co-founder. Right. She's my co-founder, and we worked together at Time Magazine in either beginning in the late seventies, early eighties, and uh, we've been friends since then. And I only wanted I wanted a partner when I went did this because I like having a partner, and I went to one person and one person only, and thank God she said yes, and it was Alessandra. Excellent. And so that was three, four years ago. Tell five us. Years. That was five years five ago. Five years ago. Gosh, I remember getting it on Saturday mornings and thinking that was a wonderful time to receive it when you first launched. Yeah. Tell us about the business side of things. How's how's it going? What are the new things that you're thinking of? Well, we we um 
we we started to expand. We we, we did we did a, a to me build around these expansions around editors. So uh, Linda Wells has always been one of my favorite Conde Nast editors, and she launched Allure like thirty years ago and ran it for twenty five years. And so we do. We she started off as a columnist in Airmail, and then we built a. A, a monthly edition around beauty and wellness that she edits with Ashley Baker, who works at Airmail, and then we're and that's a huge success. And we've sold out. We've sold out all our advertising almost till the end of the year. So we we have to come up with new things. And then we we started something that at the very beginning called an arts intel report. And what it was is a it's sort of a an arts a global arts search engine. So you could if you're in, if you're going to Rome in August and you like Brancusi sculpture and you like ballet, you type in Rome, August, Brancusi, and and ballet, and it'll show you all the Brancusi exhibits, the best ballets. We curate; it's not everything, it's but the best of. And um, so it's like uh, you can sort of plan your trip around things. That you can have alerts so that anything, anytime Bob Dylan comes up, it'll it'll ping you in your uh, email uh, address uh, book. And so we. But we, but during most of the airmail's life, we had a, a pandemic when people weren't traveling. So we, right. it was not a great time to launch, right? 2019, just ahead of the pandemic. Absolutely. So we spent a lot of time even building this out even bigger, and we're relaunching it in uh, September. And uh, and we get the bugs worked out by the time people start traveling again in the spring. I don't think there will be bugs, but it. Um, no, I think it's a really useful thing, and it tells you the best hotels to stay near the where you're going to an exhibit or the best restaurants in that area. It's everything you need if you're a traveler and it's free. Wonderful. I love it. And so you have 300,000 subscribers. And trials, um, 300,000 subscribers and people who are on for like, a, a, they try for a month and then we have a huge, um, yeah. very high, um, what's it called? Um, acceptance rate that people do sign up. Yeah, and then you launched with seventeen million dollars from TPG and from David Zaslav, who is the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery. Did you have any other celebrity investors or well-known people who put money in at the beginning? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, I, yeah, we did. I, I won't mention them right now. Yeah, there was a. Oh no! Give us some names. No, 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 no. There was like, <laughs> for most of them, it was like a forced march, and I, I think they needed this, like they needed a hole in the head. But a lot of friends uh, chipped in and uh, on that first round. And then the second round, we had groups like uh, Redbird Capital and um, uh, Standard Industries, which is a, they have an invest, it's a, a huge roofing company that has a big investment arm in uh, arts projects. Yeah. And so your investors must be happy. What, what's the feedback so far? You did another Series B, uh, was that 21 with another 17 million? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think our invest we, we keep our investors abreast of everything we do. And I think they are happy and with the, the growth. It's much more it's more successful than I thought it would be, but it's a lot more work than I thought it would be. And um I just wanted to put out a pokey little weekly um newsletter. Now we we have newsstands. We have a newsstand in London across from the Chiltern Firehouse. It's a big sort of meeting place. We serve wonderful coffee and croissants and and this. The newsstand is beautifully designed, and we've got one in Milan, and we're opening one on Hudson Street in uh, Hudson and Horatio in New York in probably November. So mm. it's just very kind. There's a lot, and we're doing more events and that sort of thing. There's a lot of things I swore I would never do that we're doing because I was, I 
I spent like uh, you know 35 years doing them at, at Spy and Vanity Fair, and but uh, then you get dragged back in. Yeah. Um, what's your take on the current newsstand, the print? Um, uh, you know, I, I go down to Casa magazines. I tend to pick up things that are foreign. You look at the newsstands here in France, and they're absolutely full of beautiful, thick, glossy magazines. The same with the newsstand. There's newspapers there. And you go to, you know, the train station in Philadelphia, and they're not doing newspapers anymore. And you pick up the glossies, and they're very much not about that kind of aspirational lifestyle. What's your take on, on when you go to the magazine stand now? Like, how is it different from when it was when you were running Vanity Fair? Well, it's funny. I agree with what you say is that every when you go to the newsstand, if you look at European magazines, you think there never had been a, a reset in, in terms of print. They're they're healthy. They're, they're on high quality paper with great inks and they're they're thick with advertising, especially the French magazines. Uh, the French newsstand we would go to every day um, when we were there, um, it was like there's 70 magazines you'd see that half of them you had never seen before the newspaper business there is still vibrant uh it's because these countries are smaller physically than the united states and um no i miss all of that i mean you know the last time i you almost never see anybody in an airplane with a with a tote bag full of magazines like you used to or on the train and that's a shame but that's gone yeah. So tell us about your time at Vanity Fair. Like, what were the most outrageous perks that you had that you miss the most now? <laughs> well, there, we, we never thought of it as perks. It was just sort of uh, uh, it's sort of built into the job. I mean, one thing is I I just flew back from from uh, London uh, this week, and I realized and I realized I probably flew the Concorde forty or fifty times, which is pretty extraordinary. And and I missed that airplane, and. Um, no, there were wonderful perks, but it was you know it was a full time job. It took it it took a lot out of you putting together a, a huge magazine like that every month with you know a lot of big time um, you know writers and photographers and and uh, also we were a monthly magazine at a time when weeklies and dailies could break news. I mean, obviously, so much faster. So I had to choose stories that had, you know, what they say and call in Hollywood legs that, that would last between the time I came up with the idea or the writer came up with the idea and the time when we actually got it into print. Sometimes it'd be like three months, sometimes it'd be 50 months. And I mean, it took, um, we, when we broke Deep Throat, that took almost two and a half years between the, for the moment we started on that story and the moment we published it. So we we played a long game at Vanity Fair, and uh, because we sort of had to, but we still broke a lot of news, and uh, so you got you got you got perked well. But it, the the job was was not the job was wonderful. I loved. They everybody. owned your soul. But it would they. Oh, but it was it wasn't easy. Yeah, are you working on any investigative features now that will come good uh, in the next year or so with airmail? You know, I can't even remember. I mean, uh, yeah, probably two or three stories, but it, that's not when uh, I'm, I'm not in that business. I, we okay. have, we've done a number of investigative stories, but I'm not in that business. They, they'll, they'll be the exception rather than the rule. The rule is wonderful stories about foreign places, foreign people. I love a lot. I love a scandal. 
uh, I love a murder. Um, um, we have a wonderful book um, uh, section edited by my best friend, Jim Kelly, who um, also worked at Time Magazine in the 1970s with me and Alessandra. And um, and I've got a wonderful young staff. So, I mean, most of the staff is like under the age of 30. And it's just, we yeah. call them, you know, rookies and has-beens. And uh, <laughs> I'm in the has-been category. Um, now, you have a famously have a, an amazing aesthetic, and I was reading about the design of your office and that you have the staff around a table underneath a, a beautiful chandelier. Can you describe your office surrounds for us right now? Well, it's in, it's it's about two and a half minutes from my apartment here. It's in it's on West Ninth Street in the village. And it's the, I didn't want to go into a building where I needed a swipe card to get in um, for our offices. So I, I we rented the parlor floor of a sort of grand townhouse and it's got like 12 foot ceilings and french doors and fireplaces and uh chandeliers and i had a, i we sold our house in 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 on bank street i moved to an apartment and i had a long table that i had made it's about 17 feet long and it's only got four legs so it has steel trestles running the length of it so it doesn't sag and it's electrified because my kids used to do their homework at this table. And so we put that in, and then we have like, you know, 16 chairs around the table. And that's where the staff works. Beautiful. So yeah. is it true? Are you are you really redesigning the commissary at Warner Brothers? Well, I don't, you know, I'm, I had lunch with David Zaslow there after he took the job. And I, I thought that the commissary, I thought it looked like a Marriott. And I said, this is Hollywood. Shouldn't it be better looking? I said, well, if you want to do it, go ahead. So we're doing it for um, Basil Walter, our architect. And he and I work on it for free. And they'd have studio carpenters do it. And I know it got criticized a bit because after the writer's strike. But this conversation took place before the writer's strike. And um, at some point, well, the, the studio carpenters are just sitting doing nothing. So at a certain point, I'm sure they'll fix them. It was really... A real, I just thought it like a Hollywood commissary should look like a Hollywood commissary. Yeah. So, so tell us about the writer's strike, the actor's strike. It's, it's happening at the same time. It's the first time that ha has happened since the 1960s when Ronald Reagan was running the union. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, the state of Hollywood these days and, and how this strike gets resolved? Because obviously this is going to deprive us of some cultural product down the line and it's not good for the streamers. And Bob Iger had some things to say about the demands which were not met with um, great pleasure by the strikers. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not an expert on Hollywood, at this part of Hollywood at all. And uh, But I do think, you know, it's funny, somebody I read somewhere that if you took the top 10 wage earners in the executive suite in Hollywood and the top 10 wage earners from the actors um, uh, category, it almost, their, their, their income is about the same over the last five years in total. And all of that money is obscene, obscenely high. And I think that, um, um, I mean, I, I would probably go more on the writer's side and the actor's side, just um, being a, a W2 employee, but most of my life. And, uh, It'll get sorted out, but it'll be you know revolutions are are painful and and uh, um, but the, the the studios will survive. But you know writers, I mean, I, writing is hard and and acting. I mean, even acting is hard, and I, I think that they deserve to be um, you know paid what they're worth. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this thing kind of got uh, started because 
there's been a boom of content, right? Everybody's been spending a lot of money on content and Netflix changed the way actors and writers get paid. And uh, that was great while everything was, everybody was spending a ton of money. And then when they shrank the the projects they wanted to do, then there were no residuals and the tide kind of went out. So, um, you know, I guess we'll see like how this thing gets resolved. It feels like Netflix wins uh, no matter what the situation is in, in Hollywood. Um, do you go and see movies anymore? Do you go to the cinema? No, no, I went to see my wife and youngest daughter and I went to see Mission Impossible the day after it opened in London. And I uh, will probably take my daughter to um, the Barbie movie this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not often, quite frankly, because there's as the movie theater, as the movie theater screens get smaller, home screens get bigger. So there's there's a, there's a there's movie theaters near us in Connecticut where the screen is not much larger than the one we have in our in our in our living room. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us about the Cannes Film Festival. You hosted an incredible party there. How did you get all these people to say yes? Are they your friends? Like, what, how do you cur- curate these parties? And um, I believe David Zaslav was your co-host for the event at the Hotel du Cap. It was when COVID. Well, I've done it. I've been I've been doing it there a long time, probably around 20, 20, 25 years. So I um I know the term. It's the only thing I do on an annual basis that I actually liked and looked forward to. Um and um I happened to be in France at the time. So I thought we we did this and it was um it was well turned out and and um tell us who was there and tell us who you chatted to while you were there. Well, you know, but I, 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 I um, you know, I, I, I sat in a bunch of friends of my day, like Ruth Rogers, who owns the, the River Cafe, and and um, and I, um, but I, you bring a bunch of people from England and a bunch of people from Europe that may be outside the film industry but successful in their own realms. And then you get a sprinkling of movie stars, and then you get some, I guess, movie industry, a few movie industry people, and. Um, you just try to make it so that each table is a an individual dinner party. So you do your best to make a, an interesting mix of, of at each table that of people you think will find the other person interesting. And you serve very the best food you possibly can. You serve the best wine you possibly can. So nobody goes home with a headache. And you hope for the best. Yeah. Do, when you're curating those parties, are you thinking about a business result too? Or the business, is there an ROI on a party? No. And, and, and it's funny, it's not in a strange way. It's not who you, it's not who you invite that's so important. It's who you don't invite. And because um, I remember one year we invited Pamela Anderson and, and Paris Hilton to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. And they started, um, what, there's a, pic, a picture of Paris Hilton signing one of Pamela Anderson's brass. And that became the picture of the whole party, but it didn't reflect what the party was like at all. Yeah, so, I see. I see. So anyway, so I, I'm, I'm much more cautious after that. Yeah. Well, what are your other recollections of those great years of those parties? Well, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, there's some I just can't tell in a, on a family podcast, but it, <laughs> no, it was a lot of work. We would start working on this six months in advance. And, um, uh, you know, I wanted to do well for the guests. I wanted to do well for the magazine and for Connie Naz. So we, you know, it's a silly thing, but we took it very seriously. And in a funny way, we helped tell Hollywood 
that it was glamorous because in the early 90s, it was a very grungy period. The Oscars considered really square. Nobody went to the Oscars. And by having an outsider, um, an outsider group like, like, you know, Vanity Fair come in and say, well, this is an actually glamorous business. I think it helped sort of rejigger their thoughts towards the subject of, of what glamour is. Mm. And then, you know, to share some of the big names who came and how difficult was it to keep people out? Because obviously everybody wanted that ticket. Everybody needed to be at the Vanity Fair party for the Oscars. In the days of the landline, it was really tough because I'd be at a hotel and the phone would ring constantly. But once things switched to cell phones, it became a little easier because very few people outside of my children and my office have my cell phone number. And it just, it, um, you know, it was, it was difficult keeping people out. And, um, you know, your big job was getting the right people in. You want anybody with a, anybody with an Oscar statue would show up. And I remember one, Sarah Marks used to be the chief organizer for us. And one year she said, great, uh, uh, Martin Balsam is at the, at the front and he wants to come in and uh, he's, he's wearing a dinner jacket. And Martin Balsam was in the original Mission Impossible television show. And I thought, oh my God, no, no, Martin Balsam, absolutely. Not Martin Balsam, Martin Landau. Martin Landau, pardon me. So, and, um, so I said, you know, absolutely, lot of men. So he came in, enjoyed himself, and the next year he won the Oscar for Ed Wood and came with his Oscar. We had oh. somebody, somebody went to a pawn shop in the valley and uh, uh, bought an, an Oscar statue, showed up in a dinner jacket, and we let him in, and then he picked the the, the Oscar back into the pawn shop the next day. I thought it was, and I, he told me about this after. I thought he was so clever. I thought he thought I'd be angry. I said, no, no, I think it's brilliant. That's very inventive. Um, you also famously have uh, a bad relationship with Donald Trump, um, who I think you have a letter from in your office. Is that right? Well, first of all, I, going back forty years, I had a good I, relationship with him. Initially. I did. A, I did the first um, sort of national story on him for GQ magazine, and I spent three weeks with him, and he didn't. He hated the story. He hated one of the things he hated in particular. As I said, that is hands were very small and um he bought it and he, anyway so then i i go we started spy magazine and we came up with uh, funny epithets for people and for trump we called him a short-fingered vulgarian which which just drove him bananas and so he threatened to sue us in a number of occasions. It was uh, not, not a good relationship. But then when I got to Vanity Fair, he realized that he's transactional enough to realize he had to make friends with me. So he sent me a very glowing letter when I got the job that is framed and over, over the fireplace at the airmail offices. And he invited me to one of his, well, he invited me to two of his weddings, one of which I went to. And, but then it, it, it dissolved back again into uh, uh, acrimony. And he, would tweet the most horrible things about me. Um, that I was sloppy, that I was, you know, dopey, that it was basically all those all those seven dwarves sleepy, that I was gonna lose my job, that my wife thought I was a loser. So I just threw <laughs> all these these tweets up and had them framed and had them on all on a wall. There was like 49 of them or something like that on a wall outside my office at Vanity Fair. And I actually did 49, and I was sort of praying that you would do 50 just so it would tidy up that last little corner. Yes. Um, and so what do you think about the presidential election to come? We have Joe Biden and Donald Trump likely the candidates. 
how do you what does that say about america what does that say about current politics um that there aren't fresh new candidates with new ideas out there and maybe we'll see um them emerge what do you, what are your thoughts on the next well it's election? very hard for new young candidates to emerge when you got these two um you know ancient pillars standing in the way and and, and biden has been a great president i mean i would think of an incredible president but he's too old to run again trump is too old among a million other problems uh, if you look at Europe, I mean, Europe is filled with young leaders, you know, between the ages of like 35 and 55. And I do think the sweet spot in in um, the sweet spot is, a, 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 you know, for leadership is between these like you know, mid 40s to about uh, mid 60s. That's the when your maximum, you have the maximum energy, enthusiasm, wisdom, you know, connections um, uh, and just abilities and you got to get these old people out of the way to make room for younger people. And yet the funny thing is the same thing is happening in Hollywood. You've got um, um, Francis Coppola making, you know, uh, Megalopolis, and he's he's in his 80s. Um, you know, the director of Gladiator Part 2 has made Napoleon this year. He's in his late 80s. And it's, it's just, it's a land of old men. And until those old men get out of the way, you can't make room for younger men and women. Mm -hmm. Well said. I think uh, Rex Whitmer would be my choice for the Democratic nominee. Really? That's yep. great. That's really yep. good to know. Um, uh, what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, do you see uh, Biden winning, the nom winning, uh, running a second time and being the, the I guess, un unless he decides otherwise, he is the de facto um, Democratic choice, right? Until he Yeah. I mean, I've heard that it's, it's Jill who's pushing him to run again. And yeah. Um, I do think that, um, you know, I, I, you pray that he doesn't fall and hit his head during this period, because that could create a problem. Um, and um, I just think that if he had if it had any sense, he would say, OK, I had my time. I'm going to step aside and do it now so we can see who's out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to wind up, Graydon, do you have any thoughts on the cable TV news landscape um, and the information system in America? We had Chris Licht running CNN for a while. He was not really accepted by the staff there. Um, there were lots of leaks. He was unable to lead and he uh, essentially was asked to go. And then you have kind of Fox News on one side and MSNBC on the other. Um, what's your view of the state of cable television in the States? Well, except for watching football, I actually never turn on cable TV. I listen to the, uh, and I did when I was in Europe, uh, I listened to the MSNBC, um, uh, the podcast version of their shows like Morning Joe and uh, Nicole Wallace uh, and Stephanie Rule. I love listening to them, um, but I, I don't think I can know how to turn on the TV in our apartment and get anything on old fashioned, you know, broadcast TV. And, 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 yeah, it's been years since I've watched broadcast TV. Even in hotel rooms, I don't turn it on. Yeah. So what are you mainly doing at home? You're watching sports or movies? Uh, well, I'm watching football on the weekends during the football season. But otherwise, no, I watch we watch like series and movies and and when we watch TV. And and but it yeah, any recommendations? Any recommendations? Well, I, I mean, I, people, nothing original on people. I love Slow Horses, which I thought was magnificent. I liked it. I liked it even better than I liked the books. And uh, I'm watching 
Um, even though I'm a nervous flyer, I'm watching Hijack, the Apple Plus series. And I love Righteous Gemstones that my daughter happens to work on at, at HBO, the Danny McBride series. I love that series. Wonderful. Graydon Carter, founder of Airmail. Thank you for joining the Media Mix. I really appreciate your conversation with us. Thank I, you so much. So nice to see you. You too. For more on this conversation, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mix newsletter on Substack. The link is in the description. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring or advertising with the Media Mix, email us at themediamixus at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay in the mix by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks for listening. <music>